2 Kings chapter 20, verses 12 through 19. I'll be reading from the New Living this evening. Soon after this, Merodach Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah his best wishes and a gift. For he had heard that Hezekiah had been very sick. Hezekiah received the Babylonian envoys and showed them everything in his treasure, treasure houses, the silver, the gold, the spices, and the aromatic oils. He also took them to see his armory and showed them everything in his royal treasuries. There was nothing in his palace or kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. And then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and asked him, What did those men want? Where were they from? And Hezekiah replied, They came from the distant land of Babylon. What did they see in your palace? Isaiah asked. They saw everything, Hezekiah replied. I showed them everything I own, all my royal treasuries. And then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Listen to this message from the Lord. The time is coming when everything in your palace, all the treasures stored up by your ancestors until now, will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. Some of your very own sons will be taken away into exile. They will become eunuchs who will serve in the palace of Babylon's king. And then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, watch this, this message you have given me from the Lord is good. For the king was thinking, at least there will be peace and security during my lifetime. This message you have given me from the Lord is good. For the king was thinking, at least there will be peace and security during my lifetime. If you have your Bibles in your hands, just set that on the pew behind you if you would. And just one more time, if you would just lift your voice in a prayer of surrender and openness to God. I believe that God wants to speak to his people in the sanctuary this evening, wherever you're joining us from online. Let's pray with a fervency tonight. Lord, we give you the praise, the honor, and the glory. We're so thankful that we have the privilege, God, the opportunity to worship freely in your house here this evening. And God, I am praying that your word that you promised would not return void wherever it goes, wherever it is sent. God, I'm praying that that word and that promise would be fulfilled in us tonight, in our hearing tonight, God, and those joining us wherever they might be from. God, I pray that you administer by your word, challenge and change us, lead us into your perfect will. We give you the glory. We give you the thanks. And everybody said in Jesus' name, you can be seated this evening. Amen. A relay race is one that is run by a team of four runners. The first runner carries a baton. And after running a specified distance called a leg, the runner hands the baton to the next team member. The exchange, it must occur within a zone only a few meters long. Timing, of course, is crucial. If the runners do not exchange the baton within this zone, then the team is disqualified. The length of the race, it varies from 400 to 6,000 meters. And in some relays, each team member runs an equal distance, but in others, they run different distances. The nuances of the particular race are not of critical importance, however. The most essential element in every relay race, the thing that everybody has their eyes glued to, is the baton. Somebody say the baton. 
The relay race is not necessarily won by the team that runs the fastest, but rather by successfully passing the baton in the exchange zone. You see, races are won or lost in the passing of the baton. Teams can be disqualified by just a bad pass, and we understand uh, in the case specifically for a relay race and metaphorically that passing the baton is essential if we are going to win the race. Understand tonight that you could have the one and only Usain Bolt on your relay team. Of course, perhaps the fastest runner on the planet, at least by measurable metrics, he certainly is. And he could be on your team, but, but having somebody with the highest personal skill level or the most giftedness does not guarantee your success. Because we do not measure the success of any given team by isolated skill sets of its members. It is all in how we pass what we have on to the one who is coming after us. Hear me tonight when I say, if you look at my life or if we are to look at yours, do not measure my success by what I have or what I can do in and of myself, but measure my success by how well I transfer what I am and what I have to somebody that is coming after me. In order to measure the success of my life, you need to look at my life and the lives of those that my life touches. That's how you measure, ultimately, the success of any individual. Because your success and mine is not merely measured by the sum total of you. Because as wonderful as you may be, and you certainly are wonderful. Tell your neighbor you, you're wonderful. Just remind them. It's okay. As wonderful as you may be, if it all stops when we bury your lifeless frame six feet under, we got to ask the question, what was the purpose? We must all be intentionally aiming to transfer what we are and what we have into the next generation, into somebody, our children, our families, those that look to us in our church family and in our communities. I want what we have and the truth that we hold dear to thrive after we're gone should the Lord tarry. We must pass the baton and not drop it in the transfer from one generation to the next, from one life to the next. Because we all, in an essence, are like the Apostle Paul that have something to offer to somebody, but we can't keep it trapped inside. We must find our Timothy. We must find a Titus somewhere. We must find a Philemon somewhere, somebody that we can pour our influence into and, and see this truth pass on, passing that baton. Our opening text this evening is in reference to a man by the name of Hezekiah, King Hezekiah of Judah. In the month of July, our students, we studied through his story in a series entitled The Hezekiah Generation. When you begin to learn about this man, you quickly come to know that he was exceptional in many ways. He was without doubt a vibrant, bright spot in the litany of Judean kings who, for the most part, were less than ideal and not overly committed to God. But you look at Hezekiah, many generations into the line of kings in Israel, and you see that Hezekiah was a revivalist. 
He had a large amount of success as a leader and is well spoken of in the scripture. And, and we could spend a lot of time here, but, but here are just a few points about this, about this king of Judah. Most notably, he led a remarkable reform and restored Judah to proper worship of Jehovah. And what makes this point even more remarkable, in my mind at least, is, is that when you realize that Hezekiah succeeded perhaps the most wicked king in Judah's history, his father, King Ahaz. Ahaz was the one responsible for not only allowing pagan worship and idolatry in Judah, but also he's responsible for boarding up the doors to the temple and preventing other people from worshiping God there. That was his legacy. But Hezekiah, his son, resisted the trend of his predecessors and revolted against the example of his father and led a powerful revival in his day. This is Hezekiah. He also revolted against the rulers of Assyria, refusing to pay them tribute money. Just one generation prior, again, in Ahaz, his father, one time when Ahaz faced turmoil and the kingdom in the north in Israel, they had oppressed him along with other nations. And, and Ahaz of Judah turned to Assyria for help. And in so doing, he yoked Judah together with the enemy, Assyria. And from that point forward, they were required to pay tribute on an annual basis. And, and so Assyria came knocking one day looking for their tribute from Hezekiah in the next generation. And Hezekiah, something rose up within him, and he said, no more. I'm no longer going to pay tribute to the enemy. I'm cutting it off. I'm shutting it down. And we're moving forward away from, from that sordid past. This is in the face of the fact that the north had done something very similar just prior. The northern kingdom of Israel had just cut off their tribute, and, and it didn't end well for them. Assyria they overthrew Israel, took them into captivity. And Hezekiah would have seen that firsthand, but in spite of even that example, he said, I'm not paying tribute anymore. And because of his faithfulness to God and his resistance against the enemy, when Assyria came with retribution on their mind, God fought Hezekiah's battle and destroyed 185,000 troops on, on Judah's behalf, all because of this man, Hezekiah. He's the only king in Israel's history other than David, of whom it was said, the Lord was with him. The Bible continually says of him that he did right in the eyes of the Lord, unlike many other Judean kings. He removed the high places of pagan worship throughout Israel and Judah, something that no other king from Solomon until this time had done. He and David were the only kings ever to defeat the Philistines. The Bible gives the impression in some places that in, in ways perhaps he was even greater than David when it says of him that there was none like him. There's actually more biblical material about Hezekiah in Kings and Chronicles and in the prophetic book of Isaiah and more. More about him than any other king with the exception of David. And so he is certainly a character of note in the scripture worthy of study. We could spend the entire sermon tonight and much more talking about the positive aspects of, of King Hezekiah, but tonight I would like to highlight perhaps the most significant tragedy in his life, because I don't want to measure Hezekiah's success just by what transpired between the bookends of his life and death. 
I want to know whether Hezekiah had a heart for those who would follow after him. Did he set up the next generation for even greater success and revival than what he experienced? Did he intentionally invest in his son that would succeed him on the throne and other leaders in the kingdom that would outlast his life? I don't want to be unfair to this remarkable man of God, but I do find one verse that we have already read in our opening text relating to his life, a little bit telling. Just about halfway through his 29-year reign, Scripture tells us that Hezekiah gets deathly ill. The prophet Isaiah comes and tells Hezekiah that he is to set his affairs in order. Get your house in order, Hezekiah, because this sickness is unto death, the prophet said. And Hezekiah, refusing to accept this word from the man of God, he turns to God in prayer, humbling himself, bowing his knee, and praying that God would change this circumstance around. And Hezekiah, after immediately going to this place of prayer, receives a response from God, who in his mercy decides to add 15 years to the life of this king. God literally turns Isaiah the prophet on his heels, sending him back into the palace as he is walking away, turns him back, and, and Scripture says, 2 Kings 20, verse 5, Turn again, tell Hezekiah, the captain of my people, thus saith the Lord, the God of David, thy father, I've heard thy prayer, I've seen thy tears, and behold, I will heal thee. On the third day thou shalt go up into the house of the Lord, and I will add unto thy days fifteen years, and I will deliver thee and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for mine own sake and for my servant David's sake. We aren't entirely sure why God would allow such a sickness. I read in some places that perhaps it's because Hezekiah and the man of God Isaiah the prophet were on speaking terms. I don't know where they got that. Perhaps history suggests that in some way. Maybe this was a way for God to get these two leaders, these two uh, people of God, men of God, back together on speaking terms. Maybe, maybe not. Perhaps it was just a way for God to remind Hezekiah that he wasn't invincible. Sometimes devastating situations Remind us just how fragile life is, and it brings us to a place of humility, to a place of seeking God in prayer, like we, what we heard this morning from our pastor. But regardless of the reason, this sickness prompted an act of benevolence from a sinister source. And the Bible records how an up-and-coming world superpower, the Babylonian Empire, comes for a visit to Judah to congratulate King Hezekiah on his miraculous Recovery In our opening text, if I can revisit this and walk through it, 2 Kings 20 and 12. Soon after this, Merodach Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sends Hezekiah his best wishes and a gift. You know, you've heard the, the statement from Scripture, a man's gift makes room for him, you know. It's, it's really about bribery. I don't know, maybe this was the intention. Trying to get a foothold into Judah and with Hezekiah. He had heard that Hezekiah had been very sick. But what's notable is that while there, Hezekiah shows the enemy around all of Judah and gave them a tour of all the armories, every treasury. You know, it would be perhaps equivalent to a sitting U.S. president inviting some foreign enemy into, into the United States and showing them where all of the 
the ammunition warehouses are and showing them where the nuclear launch pads are and, and saying, yeah, the code, I just flip this little thing open, I type in this code through my, you know, and, and, and then that will say, you know, giving them all the information, showing them where all the secret bases are and where they keep their tanks. That would be the equivalent of what Hezekiah does. Just opening the doors wide and letting the enemy see everything that you have. Hezekiah receives these Babylonian envoys, verse 13 says, and shows them everything. So we say everything. The silver, the gold, the spices, the aromatic oils, also to the armory and shows them everything in the royal treasuries. And there was nothing in his palace or kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. And this tour, no doubt, whetted the enemy's appetite to come back and plunder God's people. And 100 years later, Babylon did just that. Plundering the treasuries of Judah, ransacking the temple, taking the people into captivity. And, and it was a mess. And you have to wonder why. Why Hezekiah, a successful king, why he would open the door to the enemy like that. Perhaps his judgment was clouded by, by this supposed act of kindness. Perhaps all of his successes had made him prideful and he wanted to show off, you know. Pride can make us do that at times. Perhaps it was an inflated sense of power. We're strong. The kingdom is secure. Nothing can stop us. And, and because of this casual attitude and his likely sense of pride, he opens the door wide to the enemy and gave the enemy a foothold and the upper hand for the future. Whatever the reason that caused this cavalier action, it is met with strong words from the prophet when he says in verse 14, what did those men want? Where were they from? And the king says they came from the distant land of Babylon. What did they see in your palace? The prophet asks. They saw everything. I showed them everything I own, all my royal treasuries. And so the prophet gives a word from the Lord. The time is coming, he said, when everything in your palace, the treasures that were stored up from your ancestors till now, they'll be gone to Babylon. Nothing left, says the Lord. Some of your very own sons will be taken in, into exile. Your own children, Hezekiah. They will be eunuchs who will serve in the palace of Babylon's king, not in your palace, in the camp and in the kingdom of the enemy. In other words, the prophet is saying all the work that you've done, all the things you've accomplished, all the ways you've revived righteousness, it will all be for nothing. Your sons will be made eunuchs, thereby ending your bloodline, Hezekiah. The future is in turmoil. The throne is in shambles. It's over all because of this cavalier action, opening the door to the enemy. It may not impact you, and you may be, be strong enough in your mind to say that, well, I, I can handle whatever the enemy may throw at me, but hear the word of the Lord, Hezekiah. It's going to impact your children. It's going to impact your grandchildren and, and your legacy and your heritage and your lineage. It's a strong word from the man of God. But what is most startling to me and troubling to me and, and the scripture of note that I mentioned is verse 19. Because Hezekiah responds to the man of God and the word that he just received. And he says that this message that you have given me from the Lord is good. 
And I, I, I read that statement and it gripped me and I, like you, I'm sure I question how can a word such as this be a good word? How can something so devastating, a, pro- a prophetic word of destruction, a prophetic word of decline, how can this be a good word? And the scripture doesn't leave us hanging. It tells us why Hezekiah viewed it as a good word. For the king was thinking, at least there will be peace and security during my lifetime. Understand tonight that Hezekiah, again, was a successful king. But what good is success and spiritual progress if we don't see it continued in the next generation? If we are only concerned about experiencing God's favor for ourselves, but we have little concern for someone else that is coming behind us, then we miss the mark and the baton falls to the ground. And somewhere along the way, we end up losing the race and and the next generation misses out with God. You see, the church is destined for victory. But I would say that any body of believers, any church assembly is only ever one generation away from extinction. We must be committed to passing the truth that we hold dear and the love that we have for the name of Jesus. We must desire to see it passed on to the generation that is coming after us. We must be committed and resolved to see what we celebrate on an ongoing weekly basis, on a daily basis, see it passed into somebody. You may not have children, but but there are spiritual children in the kingdom of God, in the church family you're a part of. Somebody is looking to you. Somebody is watching you and seeing your example. I want what they see to be something that is worth emulating. I want what they see to be something that they desire to get a hold of for themselves. I don't want to drop the baton of this thing that we celebrate the truth of God's word. I don't want to drop the baton. I pray that my life can be invested in those around me to where they catch the burden for the work of the kingdom. I want whatever time that we have left before the coming of the Lord, I want it to go from glory to glory to glory and to only ever get greater and stronger and more powerful till the Lord comes. I don't want to see it go from glory to gutter. I want someone coming after me to get a hold of whatever I have and then go even further and be even greater for the kingdom of God. You see, this is the heartbeat of Jesus. He said in John 14, 12, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go to my Father. I'm leaving one day, guys. I'm going to ascend into heaven. And you're going to be left here to carry the mantle of this truth, to run with the baton that I am passing to you. And Jesus said, I don't want you to just do the same things that I'm doing. I want you to do greater works than what I've ever done. This is Jesus, you know, the Messiah, the Savior of mankind. He said, hey, guys, it's going to go from glory to glory. You're going to do greater works. It's going to be exceeding greatness. Because like Jesus, we all must desire to see those that succeed us, exceed us. I want to see such a love for the truth. 
to rest and reside in my children. I hope that someday as they grow, and this is not just for parents in the room, that you are biological parents, but again, for anybody that ever has impacted or influenced a life for the kingdom of God. But, but, but I, I long to see the day when, when that love for the word of God, the truth of his word, the kingdom, that it begins to resonate and settle in their little hearts and spirits. And that they, I, I pray that someday that their love for the word and for doctrine, I love it. I celebrate it. I cherish it. I would die for it. But I hope that it exceeds even me in my children. I want to see it go beyond anything that I could ever do. I want to pass the baton. I want to see those in our student ministry that I am privileged to lead and to serve as pastor to them. I pray that our young men and our young women get such a love for their calling in the kingdom of God and that they would exceed anything that I could ever accomplish in my life and, and in my ministry here in this local church. I pray that those that succeed me would exceed me. and I, That's got to be our heartbeat. We can't be satisfied and content just to see it be successful in the here and now and watch it fizzle and fade as we pass off the scene. Hezekiah evidently was not concerned about his posterity. Posterity, that's not a word that you use very much anymore, is it? Not to be confused with posterior, that's a different word. Just a little light humor in the middle of the sermon, is that okay? So we say posterity, meaning future generations, those that would come after you. Hezekiah was only focused on the here and now. How tragic. You read on into the next chapter, 2 Kings 21, and you see the fruit of this sort of mindset. Because the Bible says Manasseh was 12, year old, 12 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. His mother was Hephzibah. And he did what was evil in the Lord's sight, following the detestable practices of the pagan nations that the Lord had driven from the land ahead of the Israelites. He rebuilt, watch, the pagan shrines that his father, Hezekiah, had destroyed. You can pause the epitaph right there. That's all you need to read in my view. He reversed what his father had pushed for, the progress he had made. I'm not blaming all of this on Hezekiah, but perhaps if he was a little more focused on what was coming after him, this epitaph describing his son could have read differently. We must not make the same mistake as this king of Judah, Hezekiah. He was not looking down the road seemingly at all, having a very narrow mindset only focused on his present and not on the future unconcerned that future generations would face the consequences of his actions. Hear me today when I tell you that, that yes, maybe you will feel like I can handle the consequences of opening the door to the enemy in my life. You know what? You might be able to turn things around and get right with God and make it past the finish line and make it into glory, but, but there's somebody in your life right now in the meantime that is watching you. There is somebody that is impacted by your decision to open the door to the enemy and giving them a foothold in your life. 
You see, that was Samson's problem, wasn't it? He felt like, hey, I've got all this strength. I'm strong enough. I can open the door a little bit to what the enemy wants to do. And he did. And, and he ultimately, he got right with God at the end of his life. But the book of Judges tells us that he only began to do what God had called him to do. That's the wording. He began it, but he didn't fulfill it. He did not fulfill the purpose that God had placed on his life. Who knows how far he could have gone? Who knows the victories he could have won for the people and for the kingdom of God had he not opened that door? Somebody is watching. Somebody is observing. And I don't want somebody that my life is connected to to miss out on what God has for them because I get a little cavalier and I only get focused on me and the here and now. Hezekiah, as powerful as his reforms were, he didn't seem to care that they would be fleeting. Just a flash in the pan, one and done. His lineage would soon be carted off into captivity, and seemingly he was fine with it. Why? Because it didn't affect him in the present. Is that what the word says? It's a good word, because at least I'll have peace and security in my lifetime. Hear me tonight. I felt burdened. I, I don't know. I, really, I've been thinking a lot about the concept of legacy and posterity for the past six or seven weeks or so. Of course, we buried my grandfather in, in the middle of September, a great man. To, to you, he was Raymond Sr. To me, he was Grampy. I said it at his funeral, but he left a legacy and lived a life worth emulating. And he was always one that was concerned about helping those that came after him in whatever way he could. You know, kind of in a proverbial sense, you know, he took kind of this posture, just lifting up his family, lifting up his kids, lifting up, many of you could attest to that, just lifting with an encouraging word. I mean, for the first, the past several years, I mean, he would call us on the phone and he would say, are you home? Yeah. Sometimes he would get my grandmother to call. You don't want to be on your phone and driving at the same time. That's a good word. Somebody say amen. amen. He would call or she would call. You home? Yeah. All right, we've got diapers. And they would do like this drive-by delivery. They wouldn't even pull in. Just pull up on the curb. We've got some strawberries in the van. They, they buy cartons of strawberries or diapers. It was one of the two. And, and he just had a way of making sure that, <laughs> I won't finish that statement, <laughs> making sure that everyone's rear end was covered, you know. <laughs> Praise the Lord. <laughs> Someone's getting blessed right back in this corner. Just raise your hands back this way. <laughs> but since, since that time, in mid-September, the posterity, legacy, Heritage, are you leaving those coming after you, not just in monetary means, but are you leaving those coming after you biologically and spiritually better than have you led your life? I want to push the next generation forward and see them positioned and poised for success in the kingdom poised and positioned for apostolic end-time revival. I don't want this 
to decline or whittle. I want this to go into something beyond what we can even ask or think. I, I desire to see my kids, should the Lord tarry, and your children and, and those our students to see great revival brought through their lives. Amen. We must not be content to have God's hand only upon us, but we must be committed to passing this on to those coming after us. I want to make sure that I'm not entertaining the enemy in my life. I want to make sure that I'm not opening the door to his influence because maybe I'll end up being okay, but those coming after may miss out. Coming back to the music tonight. Consider, this is the message. Be mindful of and consider your posterity. Consider your legacy. Does it all die with you? Or is there somebody that will be in the kingdom on this earth pushing the kingdom forward even after you're gone? What will the next generation of apostolics look like? And what part do we play now in their continued success? See, this is a recurring pattern and theme in Scripture. Just to give you a couple examples, and we will come hastily to a close here. But you look at Joshua in the Old Testament, a man who was wildly successful in leading the Israelites in battle. He conquered and divided the land among the people. God's people, they experienced peace and, and victory in the promised land, but just following his life, you turn the page to Judges chapter 2, verse 10, and after that generation, the Bible says, Joshua's generation, after they died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things that he had done for Israel. You know, if you measure the success of Joshua's life by what happened during his life, he was top tier. Again, not trying to paint any biblical character in, you know, with too broad of a brush in some negative light, not my intention tonight. But, but somewhere along the way, Joshua failed to transfer the baton of leadership to someone coming after him. Somewhere along the way, that generation that, like Hezekiah, was experiencing peace and security. There, there's just something about peace and security. It kind of just lulls you to sleep a little bit, doesn't it? I know we've talked about it much already today, but persecution taking place among our brothers and sisters around the world in Guangzhou. I know that God is able to use that circumstance to bring about even greater revival. We see it in the Word of God. Don't we? We see persecution that leads to the spreading of the gospel. I'm not saying that we invite it on anybody, but God is able to use it. I don't want to be lulled in a state of freedom and peace and security into a state of slumber where I become unconcerned about being vigilant about passing the baton. Stir us, Lord, in the closing days of time. Posterity. Somewhere along the way, that generation failed to tell their children about the good things God had done, how he had brought them out of Egypt and allowed them to have victory over the enemy. They, they stopped talking about the battles they fought, stopped talking about the victories that they had won for the kingdom and for God. Again, you 
bookend his life. He was successful. They were successful. They may have run fast and far, but they dropped the baton. And the book of Judges is just a bloodbath. I don't want this to end with me. I want the next generation to continue to acknowledge the Lord and to remember the mighty things that he has done and see even greater victories. I don't want it to decline. I want it to go on. And I close tonight by looking at one other king in Israel's history, David. No doubt the most well-known in Scripture. Scripture calls him, of course, a man after God's own heart. Far from perfect, to be sure, but always willing to humble himself and repent before God in the midst of his biggest messes. But consider with me that perhaps what made David so successful and likely the most notable king in Israel's history was the fact that he was so committed not just to his own personal success and the success of the kingdom in his lifetime, but also and even more so to the success of those who would come after him. See, David had a dream desiring that one day a temple would be built that would bring glory to God. He looked around, he saw the lavish state of his palace compared to the meager dwelling of the Ark of the Covenant and felt that something needed to be done about it. First Chronicles 17 verse 1 tells us that he was sitting in his house and he says to Nathan the prophet, I dwell in a house of cedars, but the Ark is covered under curtains. It's in the tent. He felt it wasn't right for him to be living in a better dwelling than the presence of God and he wanted to do something about it. But in the same chapter, the prophet Nathan tells David he will not be the one to build the temple. But instead, it will be David's son, his successor, Solomon, that will build God a house to dwell in. Now, at this point, David could have just wiped his hands and said, well, I had a good run. Somebody else had to figure it out on their own. That's not what David did because despite not being able to be the one to oversee the construction of the temple, David still had a desire to be involved and to do whatever he could. And so he began to collect and corral all the various building materials so that the next generation could fulfill his present dream. He wanted God to be glorified in the temple. And he wanted to make sure that those coming after him were set up to see it happen in even greater measure than what he saw in his generation. In 1 Chronicles 28, you read how King David gave his son Solomon detailed plans, down to the minutest of details, about how to construct this temple and its various articles. You turn the page to chapter 29 of 1 Chronicles, and you read how David and the people donated literally hundreds of tons of gold and silver for the temple. They were not wanting to see this flame out We want to see them succeed. And so they gave of themselves. They gave of their wealth. And David set up Solomon, his son, and the next generation for a greater measure of success, passing the baton well. He had a desire to see his posterity have a place to worship and do great things for God. You see, to see David's success, you have to not only look at what took place in his life, and in his generation. But you also have to extend your measuring tape into the next generation. To measure the success of David, you have to include what he passed on to his son, Solomon. And Solomon inherited what scholars and theologians, they, I mean, this was the glory days of Israel. 
until the end, until what we read of in the book of Revelation. I mean, this was the epitome. Majestic, powerful kingdom for the name of God. It was all because of the investment of his father David, what he handed. But toward the end of his life, Solomon, he gets off track, perhaps not really valuing what he had been given, perhaps unmotivated to turn things around because because he knew that he would not bear the consequences of his actions in his lifetime. 1 Kings 11, similar in tone, if, if you will, to what Isaiah spoke to Hezekiah. And the Lord says to Solomon after he marries pagan wives and, and turns basically the kingdom that he has been passed into a joke. He said, since you've not kept my covenant and you've disobeyed my decrees, 1 Kings 11, verse 11, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your servants. Verse 12. But for the sake of your father, David, watch, I will not do this while you're alive. Because it's often never the generation that messes up that really pays the full consequence, is it? It's the generation that comes after. I'm not going to do this while you're alive, Solomon, because I honor your father, David, that passed this to you. But there's coming a day when your posterity, your lineage, your heritage, they, they will pay the price. I don't want to get so... To have tunnel vision and lose sight of what is coming beyond me. If those coming after us don't have the same success and favor that we have, it may be in part our fault. We must do everything that we can to see this king kingdom, to ensure that this kingdom, this local church, and the church around the world advances in the coming days, weeks, months, and years until the Lord comes back for his bride. I don't want to be like Hezekiah at the end of his life and be okay with those coming after me experiencing setback. Because if God's goodness and favor really only lasts as long as me, can I really say it was that great? I want it to go beyond me. I want it to extend beyond me. I invite you to stand with me tonight. At the conclusion, really the beginning of a new month, but at the conclusion of our family month, I believe God is speaking to parents, to grandparents. Again, not just to biological families, but God has a word for anybody in this assembly because we all have somebody that looks up to us. There, there is somebody that observes your life and your consecration to God. And I want to pass them something powerful in the name of Jesus. If you're seated with your family, I wonder, or in your bubble or whatnot, I wonder if we can just lift our voices here in prayer, if you can get a hold of your family members. Take them by the hand, grab them around the shoulder. Because God wants us to have strong resolve to pass a love for truth to our children. God wants us to have strong resolve to live lives in such a way that our grandchildren take note. You see, my grandfather, I've already mentioned him. You know what got him in the church? It's when his Uncle Leonard Parent would come around the old homestead and he would sit around the table and talk about the things of God. And, and that young man, Raymond Francis Woodward, took note and got interested and, and, and he, he, he was past something one generation to the next. 
Somebody is watching us. There is somebody that our life has influence over, and I don't want to drop the baton. The passage of time, one generation to the next. Can we lift our voices? Certainly, if you're with your family, just lift your voices together. God, I'm not content. This, this local church, this church family, we are not content to just experience your goodness and favor in the here and now. God, we are not content to experience peace and security and your power and your favor just upon us. But God, we want to see it grow. We want to see it continue from glory to glory. God, we pray in the name of Jesus, God, that something would resonate from your word tonight in the hearts of your people. God, that we would not be in this one aspect of this king of, of Israel. God, that it would not be like him, just cavalier toward the end, just, just satisfied with it being great for him and for his generation. God, let us get a determined tenacity in our spirit that what we have and the love we have for doctrine and for the word and for the kingdom, that we would not be content to have a death grip on it and then drop it at the end of our lives. But, but God, allow us to run side by side with the generation coming after and passing it off and seeing them go further. God, we, we want this to be a house of prayer, but God, let our homes be houses of prayer as well. God, I want to pass on an example of prayer and fasting and consecration to my children. God, if you would tarry to my grandchildren, I want to leave a legacy, God. Give us a mind for posterity. Oh, just let another wave of prayer just rise in this sanctuary right now in the name of Jesus. I thank you for your kind attention to the word, but it's time to respond to the word of God tonight and to just pray this into, pray this into our spirit. Just let it settle into our heart. I don't want to drop it. I don't want to miss it. God, I want to, I want to pass it on. one more time, one more prayer. If you're with your kids right now, maybe you've already done this, but but if you haven't already, I wonder if you would just lay your hand on your children. They may not, not fully understand what's happening in this moment, but I believe that God can even now begin to allow a transfer of burden and calling to happen in this moment right now. I believe that God can place a calling on a young child in this service before we go home. I just wish that we would let God minister and that we would let God move in however he wants to right now in this place. I wonder just one more time. I wish you'd lift your voice. I wish you would just lift your voice 
your passion and your focus heavenward and just allow God to do his work and his will in this moment. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Oh, yeah, I'm a